So if I were to tell you that I like to suffer, you'd think I was crazy, twisted, deranged, weird. You might think those things anyway, but if I were to say, I I love to suffer. Suffering is great. Man, suffer. suffer. Something about suffering, it's amazing. You'd say, what's wrong with you, right? But it's interesting. Oh, and then let's add to it. I like to suffer, and you know what? People criticizing me for my kind of suffering, I'm okay with that too. It goes from dumb to dumber, right? People who like to suffer, and then they don't even mind people criticizing them for their suffering. We think that's dumb, and that's even dumber. But if the suffering isn't an end in and of itself, sometimes we call that genius, don't we? Think about athletes who suffer, 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 and sometimes are criticized because they're so so committed to their sport that they're criticized for their suffering, but we might call them wonderful because there's an end game and they're going to be good at their sport. Same thing would be true with musicians. It's Practice, 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 practice. And if that's the end game, all of that time and all that time may be wasted, that just seems crazy. Why are you spending so much time doing that? Why are you neglecting other things? Why aren't you doing this or that or the other thing? But if there's an end game, we'd say brilliance, dedication. And we could use other things. We could talk about education. I'm going to give all of this focus and all of this time so I can be tested, so I can succeed uh, we, we might use it in that sense. We see it with the military. They go through all of these exercises and going without sleep and without food and training in harsh conditions and carrying all this weight and doing all of these hard things. And if that was the end in and of itself, we'd say, that's, that's ludicrous. But if it's the training and the discipline so there can be success on the other side, we'll give them medals and admiration and say thank you for serving our country. Context, context, context when it comes to suffering. And in the Christian life, it's similar. We are told that we will suffer as Christians. We'll suffer for righteousness' sake. And it's not like that's a good thing. Oh, I so love to have people mad at me, criticizing me, doing bad things to me. No, that, that's not it. But we're going to do what's right with an end in view. Ultimately, we want to do what's right for the honor and glory of Christ. And if we're going to do what's right, even if it's the hard thing and it involves suffering and criticism for doing the hard things... It's worth it if we're doing it for a Christ honor and glory, our Savior who will meet one day. Context ends up being everything to understand our suffering as Christians. And in First Peter, which is where we're going to be this morning, and we're going to be in the fourth chapter, there's 11 verses that are amazing. I almost tried to show you 11 on my hands, but it didn't work. <laughs> But there are 11 verses in chapter 4 that are, that are really quite amazing because uh, like Peter has been doing in this book and does in this book, he's helping Christians who, who know that this is not their forever home, helping Christians 
deal with suffering with an end game, bigger picture in view, so that they can have perspective. So much of 1 Peter is about perspective, seeing things clearly as they really are, ultimately, so they can do the hard things, even being criticized for doing the hard things, because it's not an end in and of itself. They're good, Christ's glory and honor, end game in and of itself, and so then things make more sense. So what we're going to do this morning is hopefully be further equipped to live our Christian lives in this world that is not the New Jerusalem, as I like to keep saying. This is not heaven on earth. This isn't our great end game. But in the hard time in between, we belong to Christ and we've, we've bl- been blessed with all that's in Christ, but we're yet to experience it all. Um, and He's helping us to deal with the here and now, Okay. And he would have needed to take his own advice later in his life because he not only suffered, but he would ultimately have to give his own life because he was not going to renounce the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's go ahead and dig in. We'll look at these 11 verses. Um, I think it'll really be helpful for us in in helping us see things the way we should see them. Let's jump right in in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. It's a call to arms. He uses a military metaphor. You're going to take up your weaponry or you're going to take up your shield. He says, arm yourselves with thinking. So he doesn't, he, he doesn't mean to be taken literally, but we see the image. It's like you're going to go to battle and so you need to arm yourself with this. Now he could just be using it in general because it's a good image, but he might even be using it because Christians would sometimes be facing actual physical harm. And so our retaliation, our response, is not to take up arms, but to arm our thinking, to arm our perspective. So it is a command. He's commanding Christians with apostolic authority, an apostle of Jesus saying, Christians, you do need to arm yourself. You need to arm your mind. You need to be able to think a certain way about this in the midst of suffering so you can have perspective, so you can see the big picture. And so this whole section is this call to to mental arms. Christians are to think a certain way or to have a certain kind of perspective. And apparently it doesn't come naturally or He wouldn't be giving it to you and to me as a command. A call to think, a call to process, to have a certain kind of mindset. Something is true about Jesus, and therefore it should affect the way that we think. Notice he says it's it's in the flesh. Um, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, he's going to use that same designation throughout these 11 verses to talk about the in the... Yes, he suffered bodily, but I think he uses it again and again and again to talk about in this world. Okay? When he was in this world, he suffered. So you're in the flesh, we're going to see he talks about that. You're in this world, you're going to suffer too. You're identified with Christ, you believed in Him, you're associated with Him. And so it's not crazy to think that you would have suffering as well. If you would, mentally, or or not just mentally, but but I drew a line from verse 1 back to chapter 1, excuse me, Chapter 4, verse 1, I drew a line back up to 3.18, which is a, a, an anchor verse. 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. So He didn't just suffer in general. He was suffering as a substitute, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. 
So it's important that we remember 3.18, Christ suffered, but He didn't just suffer as a fellow Christian or a fellow human. He suffered in place of. He suffered as a substitute. He suffered as a Savior. His, his, let's put it this way. His suffering was a saving suffering. Substitutionary life, death, and resurrection. Saving suffering. Now Peter is picking up that same theme saying, Mr. and Mrs. Christian and your kids. You'll suffer in a similar way. He's not saying the exact same way. He's calling us to imitate Christ, but to imitate Christ as in He suffered because He did what was right. But we have to make sure we remember, and I will plead with you to remember, that substitution is the, is the grounding of the imitation. Okay? He's not calling us to imitate Christ so God will eventually accept us one day. He's not doing that. He already talked about how Christ died for sins. Ah, remember 3.18? To bring us to God. So Christ's work is what saves us. It's what brings us into a new relationship with God. But now that we're in a new relationship with God, having been brought to God by Christ's righteousness and Christ's substitutionary work, now in a like way, like way, you're going to suffer in this world. Not an identical way, but in a like way. It's important that we remember that. We're going to imitate Christ in a similar kind of way, but not in an exact kind of way. I, I do this and emphasize this because otherwise we're just going to jump on the legalism kind of bandwagon. So sometimes people like to talk about grammar and, and are careful with theology, and I like to be that kind of person. So we have what Christ did, and He brought us to God. By faith. Now we're called to do things having been brought to God, if I said that right. You got the emphasis right though, right? Sometimes theologians say because of the grand indicative, what Christ has done, now we're called with an imperative. You do this. And that's what's going on in First Peter. Okay. I don't have to suffer perfectly, but I am going to suffer because of my association with Jesus Christ who did do everything perfectly. My conduct, my actions, my behavior, that's what's going to be challenged today. I'm going to be telling you, echoing from Peter, how you should behave, how you should act, how you should conduct yourself amidst the suffering in light of having been brought to God. Now I want to live like a Christian. I want to live differently. Verse 1 goes on to say, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I, would, I, would, I almost said I'd like to start a cult with that verse, but I actually don't want to start a cult, and I don't want you to quote me out of context. But if I were going to start a cult, that'd be a, that'd be a good verse to take out of its context. Christians don't sin. Well, he's going to go on, even in our very chapter in verse 8, to talk about how Christians still sin. Because he's going to say love covers a multitude of sins, so you're supposed to love other people. So he's not going to contradict himself. So what does he mean? If you've suffered, if you've been, I think what he's getting at is if you've been united to Christ and you, you died with Christ, is the way Paul's going to put it, elsewhere. Dead people don't do anything. Dead people don't sin. You've died to sin. You, you, you're now able to not sin. Doesn't mean you won't. But you're able not to. In a Romans 6 kind of way. I think that's what he's getting at here. He's going to call you to act a certain way. And you now can act a certain way because you trusted in Christ and you've died with Christ. 
And so you don't have to sin. In the flow, in the context, I think that's what he's going to get at here. Looking at it a little bit differently, in chapter 3, uh, verse 14, he talked about suffering for righteousness. If we want to carry that thought through, if you're doing the right thing, you're not sinning. Because of your association with Christ, you're, you're doing the right thing, you're believing the right thing, you're, you're doing what's righteous, law-abiding. Well, as you're doing that, you're not sinning. Because that would be the opposite. Maybe that's the flair he has in mind here. But we can move on. Look at verse 2. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, that is in this world, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So, so there it is in a nutshell. He's going to unpack it. He's going to get into the weeds a little bit and the details for life. But arm your mind to think rightly about who you are in Christ so that during the rest of your life here on earth, you won't live just for human passions. It would include sexual immorality, but it's not limited to that. You're not just going to act like someone who is your own God. He's going to get to that. And you can just do whatever you want. And if it feels good, I'm going to do it. And if I think it's right, I'm going to do it. He's going to say, for the rest of your life, now that you belong to Christ, don't be that guy or gal. But live for God. Live for God's glory. Live for, what does he say? For, but, but, but the will of God, verse 2. No longer human passions, but now for the will of God. Now I want to do what God asks. What's right? What's best? The will of God. So I'm not saved by Jesus so I can do whatever I want and act like God. I'm rescued. I'm forgiven. I'm brought to God by Jesus to now live as humanly as can possibly be, which would be doing the will of God. It's what, what we're made anew to do. I like to use the illustration, I've used it before, when, when you talk to someone and, and they, they're really good at a particular thing, and they say, I, I feel like I was made to do this. Well, we're made anew by God, having been brought to God in Christ to do the will of God. And by the way, it's what's good, it's what brings us joy, it's what brings us happiness, it's, it's the ultimate good to do righteousness, to borrow from what he says in chapter 3. So I'm trying to echo this as a Christian pastor saying to you all, if you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Christ, you've died to sin, you're not enslaved to it anymore, now you're free, now you've been set free to act humanly. And that's not doing whatever seems right in your own eyes, it's doing what God says. Doing what God says. Now, interpreters think the author here, Peter, uses sarcasm in verse 3 and following. I mention that because I tend to like sarcasm, so I'm just telling you somebody else thought this up, not me. So if I slip into sarcasm, it wasn't my idea. Um, and we don't really know. But some scholars who have more letters behind their name than I, I do say, it seems like Peter's now going to be sarcastic. How about verse 3? For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Gentiles, the godless. 
The, 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 the time for that is already passed. Okay? The godless living is not your future. Godless living is not in the here and now. There's been enough of that before you were a Christian. Now it's time to live a Christian life. It's not the good old days, even though they weren't really that good. How about, now let's keep going. He says, living in sensuality, if it feels good, do it. Behavior lacking in moral restraint is the idea. Some have uh, used this word in the, in the ancient world to, to say things like to live like a dog or to live like a goat. Some of your sophisticated translations might say licentiousness. License. I can do whatever I want to do. He's saying, the time for that? Yeah, you, you did that when you were godless in your B.C. days. If you belong to Christ, you don't have to do that anymore, and it's not right to do that. It's not good for you. It's not good for other people. So don't live like a dog, unrestrained, doing whatever they want to do, at least when it comes to morals. We're different. Then he goes on to say passions. Kind of, again, just following your feelings. Uh, drunkenness. Drinking to loss of control. Then he says, orgies, comma, drinking parties. Well, actually they go together in most dictionaries. And it's translated in Greek, frat parties. No, it's not. <laughs> it, 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 it's the party where you're going to go and you're going to drink too much and lose control and it's going to lead you to doing immoral things when you put both ideas together, which is probably how it should be. The time for that has passed. You belong to Christ. You want to live for the glory of God. Don't be that person. It doesn't make sense. That's not the Christian thing to do. That's not living for the glory of God. That's like living, that's living like an animal without morality. Then he says, and lawless idolatry or unprincipled uh, idolatry. It just doesn't even make any sense. And I think it's helpful for us to think of idolatry well, an idolatry would be serving something other than the one true God in place of God. Um, sometimes we think of idolatry as that wooden statue at the place you might go at lunch today, in the corner or something. That, that, that could be idolatry, but he, he's saying senseless idolatry. And it's in the context of you behaving, acting however you feel like behaving or acting. That would be, give us a better sense of senseless, nonsensical idolatry in contrast to living for the will of God, the creator, deliverer, savior, who you've been brought to by God's grace. Serve Him. Honor Him. Otherwise, it's senseless, nonsensical, contradictory idol worship. I think it was John Calvin who said, apart from Christ, the human heart is an idol factory. All different shapes and sizes. It's whatever we want. It's whatever we want to do. But it makes me God. It doesn't make any sense. I make my things God, but ultimately I'm making them God, so I'm God. This doesn't make any sense if we've been brought to God by Christ. But this is the natural way to think, right? And if you don't think this way, he's going to get into this, you're going to be criticized for it. 
No one belongs to themselves even apart from Christ because we have a creature-creator relationship. And now we've been, that's been reconciled and restored and so now I'm on good terms and I'm not set free to be my own God now. I, I, I'm a creature who's been recreated in Christ. But if you think this way, you'll be criticized. I mean, a, a contemporary modern day and I, I, uh, illustration of this, and we like to say, my body, my choice. That would be a good bumper sticker way of thinking of this. He's saying, you know what, those days are gone. Of you thinking you can behave however you want to behave, and you're in charge of your own life, and I'm not trying to be limiting you by using that illustration. I'm using that. You could apply that on the broad scale level. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense for you, a Christian, not to be trying to live for the will of God. You've got your senses about you now. You've got your senses. You're going to be suffering because you have your senses, and he's going to get to that now. But we want to arm our minds for godly living in and for Christ. Arm your mind for godly living. Verse 4, with respect to this, with respect to living like animals instead of moral beings, they, unbelievers, are surprised when you do not join them in their same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. So it's, it's wild that you're going to say, well, I, I'm going to try to think sanely and rationally about this. And other people watch you and say, are, are, are you crazy? You say, I'm not crazy. I'm rational. We think you're crazy. And then, and then he's going to get into this. You're judged. So you're judged by your fellow human beings because you're trying to live reasonably for the honor of God in Christ as a created being, but you're going to be judged by others as being out of your mind. I don't like being judged by others as out of my mind. I like to be liked. I don't like when people make fun of me. I don't want them to inflict pain in my life, whether it be physical or otherwise. I want to be accepted, and most sane people do. But he's saying, you're going to be criticized. You're going to be thought the fool for trying to do what's right, suffering for righteousness' sake. Arm your thinking. I like it that he says that early on because it's, it's in preparation. Well, if that's how it's going to be, how am I going to deal with it? I'm going to arm my thinking ahead of time and think sanely about this because I am going to be opposed by those who love the flood of debauchery. So, verse 5 then says, But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. I think he's using that there to include everyone. He's going to judge the living and the dead. They're accountable and they're going to be judged for it. So keep, your, keep that in mind as you're having a hard time dealing with not being accepted. Verse 6 says, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, I think spiritually dead, that though judged in the flesh, in the here and now, the way people are, 
I think judged in the, in the flesh, meaning judged by those people who've embraced the flood of debauchery, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Now, I'll confess to you, verse 6 is, is a little bit of a challenge interpreting it, whether it's in the ESV that I'm reading from or in the Greek New Testament, and lots of pages are written about it and by it. I take it that gospels preached to spiritually dead people, first part, then we get to the comma, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, meaning people are judged by other people, and that could be painful, then after that comma, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Gospel brings life. They're going to live in the Spirit the way God does. Certainly that's what's best. Preach the gospel to unbelievers so they don't act like unbelievers anymore because of their new position in Christ. And sure, there's judging that goes on on a human level, but you know what's best? What's best is being godlike, made alive in the Spirit. Keep thinking clearly, I think is the takeaway. So when I don't approve or I don't participate and I have to suffer for righteousness' sake, I've got to keep this in mind. Okay, how about verse 7? The end of all things is at hand. We're not waiting for the next thing from God other than the return of the Son. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. For the sake of your prayers. Kind of a weird way to think. The end of all things is at hand. Um, I don't think he's saying you should quit your job and sell your business and sit in the driveway in your lawn chair with your balloons in a cocktail. Um, I don't think that's the idea. But, but Christ is the ultimate. He's the one we've been waiting for. There's nothing left on, on the prophetic timeline. We're waiting for His return. Okay, And that, that calls for some sober kind of living. Uh, not living flooded with debauchery, uh, making idols all of the time and doing whatever feels right. No, this is a time for a more seriousness. This is significant. Self-controlled, sober-minded, for the sake of your prayers. Not exactly sure what he means. For the sake of your prayers. Now, if I think prayer is one of those things I don't like, but it's something I'm supposed to do. Eh, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Be sober-minded, which is hard. It's difficult for the sake of that other hardship you have called prayer. If we scratch that, though, and say, no, I don't, that doesn't seem to be it. Be clear-thinking, doing the right thing, sober-minded, not just doing whatever feels right for the sake of your prayers think that clear thinking is going to afford you prayer, okay? Meaning, you, you've been brought to God. You've been brought to God by Christ. You have a good relationship with God, and a good relationship with God means prayer is not terrible, okay? It's actually good. I, I could talk to God. I could talk to God knowing He hears me, even though He doesn't talk back. That's weird. <laughs> but I've been brought to God by Christ, 
Okay? And this is not heaven. It will get better. But I've been brought to God by Christ. And so I have a good relationship with God. And I want to talk to God. And I want to communicate with God. And it's sweet. And it's easy. If I'm clear-headed in my thinking, sober-minded, self-controlled, it's going to have me clear thinking about my having been brought to God, talking to God. It's a joy. You'll, have a, you'll, you'll enjoy your great joy if you just keep thinking clearly about these things, regardless of what kind of hassles going on in your life. Verse 8 says, Above all, keep loving one another. Now he gets into relationship stuff. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So now he gets into the how to do this with other people. So far it's been about you, alone, arming your mind, It's not an easy life you're going to live, suffering for doing what's right, because it's going to happen. And now, how do we deal with other Christians who are fellow pilgrims, fellow sufferers, fellow strangers, and fellow aliens? He's going to talk about that a little bit. Now, just as a little aside, sometimes people talk about how, well, I'm thankful for reading the Bible, but you don't ever give me anything practical. I, I, I have, I'm just, I can't even say words. First Peter's really practical. Now he's not telling you how to clean your teeth. Okay, he he he's not doing that. This is not a, it's not a hygiene book. Okay, he he's not telling you um, dating advice. He's not telling you life coach stuff and how to plan your retirement. It's not doing that, but the Bible's not that. There are principles that are true in the Bible that you can apply to many things in life. But the reality is the Bible purposely is not speaking to those issues because there's great freedom in those kinds of issues and common sense in those kinds of issues. But he's, he's giving you practical instruction on how to live your life. Sanely. By yourself. You used to live a life flooded with debauchery, and if it feels good, it's right and do it. And now you're in touch with reality by God's grace, and now it's time for self-control, which is the best thing, by the way. It even helps your best relationship, the one you've been brought to God in. This is, this is, it doesn't get more practical than this. In one sense, I want to push it too far and say, if it's more practical than this, it's probably not in the Bible. We found it in verses where it actually wasn't. You're going to suffer for righteousness' sake if you're a Christian. Here's how you deal with it. Okay, that's what he's doing. This is super practical. Arm your mind. That's the command. I can tell you the God of the universe to you, Mr. and Mrs. Christian, and your kids, commands you. You want to know how to live your life? Arm your mind. Get clear in your thinking. And here's how. Okay, now he's going to help us deal with one another. So, you want relationship advice? I'm going to give it to you. <laughs> okay. This is as close as a life coach as I'm going to get. Here's relationship advice. But it's, see, it's in principle. It's, it's, it's 10,000 foot level. Because there's a lot of freedom in how we do it. But this is the relationship advice. Okay? 
So, above all, keep loving one another. That makes sense, doesn't it? Above all, given the fact that it's the second greatest commandment, and it's the first greatest commandment as it relates to other people on a horizontal level, so he starts there. Love other people. Love your neighbor as yourself. Christian community in context here. Above all, keep this in mind, keep loving one another earnestly, sincerely, genuinely, not just a feeling, not just a saying, but actually doing it, since love covers a multitude of sins. Pretty, pretty good. It's good that he slides in the covers a multitude of sins. He's not talking about a cover up. But the reality is no one in this room, no Christian, even though they're positionally perfect in Christ, is yet glorified. And so as we struggle, and I'm supposed to love you, but you don't deserve my love. can't believe I just said that. Let's reverse it so you feel good about yourself, right? But you're supposed to love me, but I don't deserve your love because I'm not perfect. It's still the command. It's still the instruction because love covers a multitude of sins. Okay, so we're to have a loving community. Remember when God loved us, He gave His Son, so there was cost involved, there's sacrifice involved, so we're called to love one another. Love covers a multitude of sins, so we've got to keep that in mind. We are in a community of fellow sinners, so, that, so that's helpful and important. Verse 9 says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I love the balance, right? Yeah, I'll be nice to you, right? Show hospitality, right? There's vulnerability there. It might look different in different cultures. It does. But you're, you're going to provide, you're going to love, you're going to care, you're going to meet needs on a personal level with someone without grumbling, even with a good attitude. This is what I want to do. I want to do this in the name of Christ, for the glory of Christ, and that's where all this is going, by the way. Show hospitality without grumbling, a little bit more tangible kind of love, meeting real needs with a good attitude. Verse 10 says, As each has received a gift, and you have if you're a Christian, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. That's super. God gave me everything good that I have. So I want to be a good steward, and I want to give good things to other people who need things. Pretty, pretty simple. I'm not claiming to be good at this, by the way. So please don't, don't misunderstand. But when I do have an opportunity to give things to people, I love it. And again, I'm not claiming to be good at it. But there, I think I was, I was saved to do that. I was made to do that, right? And you know what I mean. When there's an opportunity and, and you can, and you can just, even if it's something simple, so I'm not trying to brag, but just to give something to someone. It's a, it's a joy. It's like that. That felt good. I like that. Now, maybe it doesn't always feel good. But God is everything you have that's good has been given to you. I have to remind my kids of this, and you do too if you happen to, happen to have kids. They're arguing over stuff that I bought for them. Everything you have has been given to you, so it's okay to share with other people. So this is how we want to live as, as humans. So we want to do that. It's a great perspective. Verse 11, we're going to close this out. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. So there's seriousness there. There's, there's 
gloriousness there. I think we could apply this to people who aren't preachers and teachers. Or people who are doing evangelism, but maybe we could start there. If I'm going to say this is what God, this is God's wisdom. I'm probably not going to be, there's a sobriety to it, but there's also a joy to it. There's a confidence to it. There's something great about this. I want to to speak, and if I'm going to speak, it's as if I'm, I'm speaking the oracles of God. This is great. It's encouraging. It's positive. It'll help you. And we can apply it in different ways. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies... That's a Christian way of thinking. That's armed thinking. And then he hits the crescendo point here. In order that in everything, so he's covered a lot of bases, but it's even broader now. In order that in in everything, so universal scope, God may be glorified, made much of, drawn attention to, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He probably hung out with Paul so much he learned to just kind of lose control in doxology, you know? This is great. We want to do the right thing because we can and we know. We know God's will. We used to not know God's will, but now we're clear thinking. Now we can act humanely and we can do this because of Christ. He's the one who's suffered for us savingly. And so now this is this great reality that we can do everything that we do for the greater glory of God. True purpose. Lasting value. Extraordinary. See, now it brings meaning to your life as an alone, when you're as an individual, but also relationally. Even amidst the suffering, you're going to do this for the greater glory of the one true living God. You are a sane person. You're clear thinking about things. Perspective comes. It's great. I need this kind of reminder. Especially amidst the tension and the conflict and the difficulty. And here he just ushers us into the throne room of God and gives us value to all the suffering that's hard. This is good perspective. Suffering is not the end game. That would be crazy. Living for the greater glory of God Almighty, that's an end game. That makes sense. There's a great quote from from Bach. Johann Sebastian Bach, who, who famously would sign his name and then S-D-G. For what? Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. He said, I play the notes as they are written, but God is the one who makes the music. I like that. We're going to do the right things, even though the right things sometimes are pretty much the ordinary things and they're the hard things and they're the things that might bring you suffering. And God uses it for His honor and for His glory. Soli Deo Gloria is how Peter ends a chapter and it's a great way to end the chapter. To God alone be the maximized glory. We're no longer idolaters. We're worshipers. 
So let's pray and be done for the morning. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for time together. Thank you for a simple letter, in some ways a hard-hitting letter, an encouraging letter. Thank you for the fact that we can be clear-thinking. Help us today as we want to live like Christians and we don't want to live massive contradictions to our profession of faith in Christ. We're thankful for these things. We're thankful for opportunities like this to learn things. Help the men and women and boys and girls here today uh, by the power of Christ to say that, that, that sin is what would make me live like an animal and to say no to that and to say I'm going to live like a human being redeemed in Christ for His honor and for His glory and to find ultimate purpose in that and not something lesser. In Jesus' name, amen.